You're listening to audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. This morning, we, even now as we've begun our Advent season, we continue and, and finish our Philippians series. And Paul here uh, writes to his beloved Philippians, saying this. From chapter 4, verses 10 through 23. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, because once again you renewed your care for me. You were, in fact, concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Still, you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my needs several times. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. But I've received everything in full, and I have an abundance. I am fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided, a fragrant offering an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now, to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send you greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be with your spirit. This is God's word. Good morning, King's Cross. If you do have your Bibles, I hope you do turn to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to be in that passage that Nate just read. And I hope everybody had a fantastic Thanksgiving with family or friends or both. And hopefully you didn't eat a half a container of fudge late at night like I did. Or more, too much food, turkey, ham. There's a lot more leftovers this year. I used to complain about that. There wasn't enough, and then I was like, I'm done with turkey after two days. But it was good. And hopefully you guys had a really, really great time. An opportunity um, to reflect and be thankful because even as we wrap up this period uh, this holiday of Thanksgiving and, and, and if for some of you you already celebrating Christmas after Halloween's done or about time Halloween's done I get it uh, for a lot of folks this marks that Christmas season and for the church calendar this is the first Sunday of Advent um, that we look back reflect and, uh, and, 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 and consider and hopeful um, what our hope is in 
and it is not initially planned this way, yet providentially fitting to be in the last passage of Philippians for this Sunday. If you were here a few weeks ago, uh, we had a change of plans, and the psalm that was planned for this week uh, was preached, Psalm 130, as we've read some of that psalm, which was about hoping in the Lord and waiting on Him. And even now in this passage, uh, as I prepared, I did not expect and see uh, ahead of time how poignant it was even for our own hoping, our trusting, and our foundations um, as we look to Christ. It's not, um, it, it's somewhat of a, uh, of a wrap up of the letter, um, but I'm going to talk about uh, three primary areas of this passage. And that's gratitude, generosity, and grace. Um, but before we get started, I want to uh, pray over our time that the Holy Spirit will teach us. And, uh, and that I'd step back and be out of the way so that, uh, so that you can hear from the word of the Lord. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity we get to come together like this. We're grateful for the chance to be in your word. We're thankful for friends and family that we could celebrate with or spend time with over this last week. And even some of our church family, faith family, are still traveling, and I pray that you be with them uh, as they're away. But Lord, as we open up your word today, God, I pray that your wisdom and your insight and your spirit would teach us and instruct us. Um, God, it's only by your power that we learn or grow in any way, and it's only in your Son that we have any hope. And I pray, Lord, that we are reminded of that this morning in a new, fresh way. And that we leave here more and more like him. I ask all this in his name. Amen. Um, well, as human beings, we can we can put our hope in a lot of different things. I could probably point to the larger cultural hopes that people have. Um, most prominently, we look at the political hopes that seem to be at the forefront. I try not to turn on the news too much. Uh, I. It seems like maybe a generational thing, but I know when I'm with some of my other family, they tend to have TV on nonstop at the house. We just turn to on, turn on maybe some streaming channel from here to here, here to there. But so we get to see more of the, the broadcast news, and usually it's something about this political decision or that. And, and you see a lot of people putting a lot of hope and passion into their right candidate, getting into the right office. And it's not wrong for us to do those things, not wrong for us to seek the good of our community, but it's not the place for our hope. Likewise, we could come a little bit closer to home, and maybe you have your hope in that next big job you might get. Maybe the one you're in stinks. Some of us have been there. I mean, my hope is that the next one's going to be amazing. This one, if I get this. Uh, maybe it was when you were in school, and if I just get that, that, that opportunity to get into this program that I'm in right now, or the internship. Being so close to NC State, I'm very sensitive to the fact that uh, I've heard from uh, crew, the crew director there, that one of the primary stressors for college students is having the right internship and being in the, getting the right classes and getting the right grades and being in the right volunteer program and just spending their time on those things. Their hope in everything is in those things. And we can hope in money. We can hope in finances. We can hope in a lot of physical things. But this letter and this close, what I'm hoping for us, what I prayed for us, is as Paul is closing this passage, that even though he's not explicitly making a last call, okay, that last, the last passage we talked about, the last the beginning of this chapter, was his last appeal, really, directly. 
to the Philippians. And he has from the beginning encouraged them to stand firm in the Lord. This is no, not a secret. Stand firm in the Lord. And in this final passage, though, he turns from that appeal of standing firm in the Lord to explicitly giving an example of what it looks like to stand firm in the Lord. Almost as if he planned where he says, imitate me and imitate others who are more mature. And then he shows, hey, this is what I'm doing and how I look at your giving, how I look at generosity, how I'm content in Christ and how I celebrate and rejoice with you. And so ultimately what he wants to finally get the Philippians to understand as he's encouraged them to stand firm in the Lord, he's showing them by his own perspective and his words that their contentment, their confidence, all of their hope can rest on the firm foundation of Christ. And for us believers, what I would hope that we would see today is that as Christians, our contentment, our confidence, all of our hope can rest on the firm foundation of Christ, can rest there. And if you're an unbeliever at all, this is a great week to hear this message. Throughout this passage, Paul is pointing to the Christian's one and only hope, and that's Christ. As he's done through the whole letter. So again, we're going to look at this in sections. There's no overarching theme. We're looking at the, at the uh, example of Paul to imitate, if you will. And learning from him as he's encouraging, finally, the Philippians. And the way he, he does that in three sections. And the first is one of expression of gratitude. The second is, is celebrating their generosity. And then the third is, uh, is, is grace. Is an appeal to grace. Now, so we got three Gs. You know that? Gratitude, generosity, grace. Alliteration, I'm not, I'm just, you know, a little bit too Baptistic there. But we got it. The verse is this, in verses 10 through 13. Read with me here where he says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly because once again you renewed your care for me. You were in fact concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. Paul has said multiple times, rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord always. He says, it's good for you. I'm okay to repeat this. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. So what's he want them to do? Rejoice in the Lord. What's the first thing he says as soon as he starts to close? I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. He ones up them. One ups them, right? Because not just rejoice in the Lord. I rejoice in the Lord greatly. Why? Because once again, you renewed your care for me. your concern for me. By the way, this is the same language of, of, of a same similar mind. He's saying, you join me in mind. You united with me. You renewed your care for me. You were concerned again once for me. And I rejoiced in the Lord for it. He didn't come out of the gate saying, hey, praise you for your good generosity. He didn't say, you did an amazing job. Keep it up. He said some of that later, but his first words were to rejoice in the Lord. Did you know that every good thing comes from the Lord? It's not just simply between the giver and the receiver. There's, with the believer, with the Christian, there is a three-way exchange going on that God would supply the giver to be generous that he would provide the opportunity to give that he would make sure there's provision for those who need 
And Paul knows that. And Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord because you did this. I knew he was at work. And it wasn't that they didn't want to do this before. In fact, he says, you were concerned about me, but you lacked opportunity to show it. So there was something that was prohibiting them, whatever it was, it didn't matter and necessarily it just whatever caused them to not be able to, re, to supply his needs, to provide for him in the, in the past. But now they renewed it and he was enthusiastic. He said, praise God, you're now giving to me again, you're knighting with me in this. But he goes quickly from thanking God for their generosity to the next passage of 11 through 13, where he says this, I don't say this out of need, by the way, I don't need it. For I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Many of you in here are probably familiar with that verse. A very familiar one. This is actually, this is probably, maybe I'm wrong, I have no scientific data for this, but it appears to be one of the most out of context quoted verses I've seen quite often. It's on t-shirts, I've seen it on sports posters, okay, I've seen it on inspirational mugs, usually taken in some respect or another, that there's nothing I can't do without Christ strengthening me. Even, even weightlifting stuff, I'm like, what? I can bench 500 pounds with Christ strengthening me. <laughs> no brother. Back off the bench. <laughs> there, is, there is reason for us to have confidence that God can do, as in Ephesians, far above we can ever ask and think. Okay? And in some miraculous way, he strengthens a mother to lift a car off a little kid. Okay? Then yes, praise God for it. But that is not the intention here at all. And I can show you in so many ways why that's not. Truth is, this passage has a far more important meaning. It's a far more important meaning for us. And Paul starts out this passage to say he wants them to be clear that his joy was not dependent on their gift. There's a little bit of back and forth in here, by the way. He's kind of saying, I'm really excited. Thank you for generosity. I didn't need it. And later he says, I'm really glad that you gave me this. I'm praising God for it. But not, not that I want the gift for myself, but it's for you because I, I'm fully supplied. There's a little, some, it appears to be a little bit of attention. It's possible that he's wanted to make sure that they don't feel uh, obligated to keep giving because they've been doing so out of their poverty. We see that in Corinthians, that in that letter, he says the Macedonians have been giving above and beyond. They've been extremely generous. But it's also important to note that he's trying to illustrate that it's not their gift. It's God at work. Right? I rejoice in the Lord. It's not them in and of themselves that's doing the supplying, but it's God working through them. And so he goes in this passage to talk about his supply does not rely on the Philippians. So, so, so here's, here's an encouragement for everyone here. You ready? You do not have to carry the burden of supplying the needs of other believers. That is not all on you. God supplies. But there's opportunity for us to partner with him in it. And we should be generous. So what I mean by that is we're going to see a lot of needs around us. By God's grace, we supply food for a lot of folks in this community. We cannot, in our own strength, solve poverty. Christ said that they'll be with us. But by God's grace, we can do all we can to meet needs that are around us. 
And Paul is telling them, I know God meets my needs. You don't have to carry the burden of meeting my need. We steward, we are generous, but God ultimately is the one that provides. And the Philippians, they were giving generously out of their poverty, but Paul was trying to illustrate to them, despite the fact that maybe you weren't able to give before and now you met my need, maybe there's another combination there. He's saying, you don't need to feel guilty for the time when you couldn't meet my need. Thank you for now doing that, but I have learned to be content. I've learned to be content. Here's encouragement for all of us. He didn't start there. The word literally is he learned it. He attained it. He grew in it. Maybe not at first. Believe me, I, I need to learn to be content. And if you're like me, we can aspire and pray that God would teach us more and more to be content. He grew into his understanding. But the language here is a little bit even more than that. See, this passage in particular, there's a group of philosophers known as the Stoics, Stoicism, arrived around the third century BC. So it had been around for near 400 years by this point. And Paul was known to interact with some of these modern philosophies. It's another reason I can look at this passage and say his wording here doesn't say, hey, you can go play any sport and win the Olympics with Christ's strength in you. Because he's speaking in the same language that the Stoics, and they meant something very different. See, in this language, he says, I learned to be content. The very same word the Stoics would say, meaning self-sufficient. That I've learned to be self-sufficient. Maybe you've heard or referred to someone as being stoic, being very sober, level-headed, very little emotion. That's kind of what's developed into now. The overall desire of Stoicism was to achieve a good life or happiness through virtue. And that one of the highest virtues or one of the virtues to appeal was that to not be affected by your circumstances. And they would often talk about the logos. Maybe you're familiar with this. That nature or God, they believed in something higher than them, but it was out there. It was a part of everything and it was in them. Sort of more pantheist if you will, so that the logos, the wisdom, truth is out there and that we can achieve a happy life by learning to be content and pursuing virtue. And so Paul uses the same language here. And we know he would interact with these philosophers at different times because he does so in Acts 17. If you read that, he's in Greece. He's in Athens. He actually goes into a community. He sees all their gods and he interacts with them using some of their own philosophers and their poets. And so he knew their language and he spoke it, but it doesn't make him a Stoic because he does something different. Because the rest of the passage, he then turns, and let me quote, by the way, so you can get an example here of one of the popular Stoics of the time, an idea of how they thought. Uh, his name is Seneca, and he says this. He was actually born around the same time as Christ. And he was a... Um, lived at the same time as Paul. His brother was one of them that actually tried Paul. Interesting, as a governor. But Seneca said this, true happiness is to enjoy the present without anxious dependence upon the future. Not to amuse ourselves with either hopes or fears, but to rest satisfied with what we have, which is sufficient. For he that is so wants nothing. The greatest blessing of mankind are within us and within our reach. 
A wise man is content with his lot, whatever it may be, without wishing for what he has not. Sound similar? Contentment? There's a very significant difference. See, where Seneca and other Stoics would say this, the greatest blessings of mankind are within us and within our reach. They're self-sufficient. Paul's language turns here as he says, I know how to do, make do with little, humble humility. And I know how to make do with a lot. In fact, maybe when he was Lydia at the beginning of the church, she was a fairly wealthy person. He might have had a good, good ride there. But in any and all circumstances, I have learned not just to be content, but I've learned the secret of being content. He literally says the secret, meaning there's something more you're missing, Stoics. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether I have all I need or I need food, whether in abundance or in need, the last part is critical. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. It's not the power within the man. It's not the power that you work up through your own fortitude, another stoic virtue. But the fact that, as Paul says earlier, work out your salvation because it's God that's at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so Paul now says, I can be content through him who strengthens me. It's all Christ. It's all the Lord. Paul is not self-sufficient. Paul is Christ-sufficient. Paul is demonstrating here for the Philippians that he is dependent on Christ. And so in our contentment, we're not content in ourselves. We shouldn't look at the things around us and the things we have and think, wow, look at all that I've done. But like Paul, we can rejoice in the provision and the generosity of God, that all good things come to me. I can look at my family, at the home that we have, the shelter, the food that we're provided, the job that I've secured, the fact that we can come together and celebrate like this. And I can say, I rejoice in the Lord. And hopefully learn to not be so dependent on myself, but rather content with what Christ provides. That he is sufficient for me, not my own strength, but his. And so in this passage, even though Paul was content in Christ, he was also still grateful for the Philippians' generosity. And he continued to encourage it. He didn't stop there because in verse 14, he says, still you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. Still you did well, even though I'm content, even though I have what I need, even though everything that I supplied by Christ is more than I have, more than enough. You did well by partnering with me in my hardship. Meaning to come alongside me, partnering, the idea of walking together in the same direction. That I had hardship both, I mean, he's in prison at this point, guys. He's in hardship. And the Philippians not only financially supported him, not only gave their supplies, but they sent time and resources. Epaphroditus even risked his own life to help partner with Paul in his hardship. The Philippians were looking to the interests of others, Paul's interests, just as Paul was continuing to encourage them earlier in the same letter to look not to their own interests, but to others. Now they're looking at Paul's interests. They're meeting him where he is in, their, in his hardship. And, and ladies and gentlemen here of King's Cross, as we came together to plant this church, those who 
kind of help lead the way and still sacrifice. Thank you for partnering with us in this hardship, giving of your time, of your resources. This is not me in prison. No, I haven't planned that yet. Who knows? The Lord will. But there was a lot of opportunity for a lot of other churches that are established for you to sit comfortably and maybe not have to do child care every other week. I get it. They won't let me stop preaching. I'd go watch kids. Uh, but truth is, I am grateful for that. Uh, and I think it's important for us to acknowledge where God is at work in us. That you would partner with us in this hardship. But you know what? There are also, as, as Aaron has mentioned, and we look around the world, there are men and women who are facing any measure of hardship for the sake of the gospel. Missionaries that either we know or have sent out from other churches that we're at. And that's the reason we prioritize financially giving and praying for and partnering with those same missionaries, those same churches, those men and women who are living in hardship in one fashion or another outside of our own circle here. Because we know that just like Paul does, Paul's out working, the Philippians are with him in partnership. That we know the gospel and the, and the family of God, the community, the church, isn't just in this building. But we have a greater mission beyond our scope. And we can give to that and celebrate it and share with them in their hardship. And Paul talks about the Philippians doing the very same thing with him. And we can do as the Philippians do to steward our resources for gospel advance. Look at 15. And you Philippians. Know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my needs several times. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. So the Philippians are talking and they're show, or the Philippians are joining in with, God, with Paul in the early days. They saw the importance of the gospel from the beginning, and they jumped on board to help support Paul in his work. They prioritized that. And he said, you were the only one that did it. You were the only one that jumped on to giving and receiving. No other church did that. They, they received a lot. They took from Paul. They had him come preach. They had him come teach. But you were the only one that partnered with me and shared in the matter of giving and receiving. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me, uh, sent gifts for me, my needs several times. They were generous with what they gave. The Philippians gave back to Paul generously. But Paul ultimately says this, it's not about the gift. It's not about the gift that he's receiving. He doesn't want the gift, in fact. He says, it's not that I seek that. It's not the desire that I have just to get from you. So let's be careful about that. Okay, if, if, if we're partnering together, it's not about just the gift that's given. It's actually about the profit to the giver. Paul, again, here is looking not to his own interest, but he's rather looking to the interest of the Philippians. He's saying, your giving to me is a blessing to you, even if you don't see it yet. Because God's doing something in you. It's a blessing to the faith family. It's a blessing to the gospel. I'm not looking for the gift for the sake of the gift. I don't need a new car, a new whatever. Paul's not looking to up his game. He's not on preacher sneakers. Anybody know that one? Is that a ring? Okay. He doesn't have $5,000 Air Jordans, whatever. Okay. He's, he is advancing the gospel. 
And he's doing so off the generosity of the church. So the Philippians are partnering with Paul. And their profit, he says, in their giving is to their account, their blessing. God is actually doing something in us when we're being generous, when we steward what he's given us for the gospel and we use it for the sake of the gospel. God is at work in you. This is not me giving the appeal now to pass the plate. That's. But in truth, thank you for your generosity. Not for the gift, but for the benefit of you and for the community of faith that God's building here. That we might reach a community that doesn't know the foundation of Christ. The next passage, verse 18. We see that Paul also points out that you're not just giving to me, but you're really giving as to the Lord. So he wants it to rate to increase to their account. And he says this in verse 18, but I have received everything in full and I have an abundance. I am fully supplied. I have received from Epaphroditus what you provided, a fragrant offering, acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Paul is using language from the Old Testament in the sacrificial system. That the same thing God would say when people came into his temple, when he came into them, they came in to worship him and they would they would live a life far from him. They would live in sin. They were they were abhorrent in their living and then come in and try to offer sacrifices. He said it was a stench to his nostrils. But here Paul says the life, the giving that you're doing is a fragrant offering to God. An acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to him. And he's paralleling here, very similar to the language in Romans 12, 1. He's reminding them it's not just between you and me that you're giving to me, but also that your giving is worship. That your life you lead in obedience is worship. In Romans 12, 1, it says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. So just like the Philippians here, as we seek to be obedient, as we seek to give, as we seek to be generous and partner with others in the gospel, that is our worship. Our obedience to Christ is worship. It's not us joining here just on this Sunday. You don't go throughout the week and live your life day to day doing whatever you want and then come here on a Sunday and sing the right songs and listen to a sermon and go home. And that is your remaining worship. That alone is not worship. That's much more where God would say is a stench to his nostrils. Instead, we want to seek, as Paul encouraged the Philippians, to live a life that is pleasing to God. That as we give, as we live, as we as we are doing good works, we're not doing that solely on the purpose of making ourselves look better or feel better, but we're doing it in worship to our King. As we are also generous, we can trust that God will supply. And that's what Paul believes. Not only does Paul believe that you give to me and meet my needs, but I also believe in verse 19 with Paul that my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory of Christ Jesus. 
does it according to his riches and glory in Christ? Do you have any idea how much that is? Huh? Oh, we don't. No clue. I mean, it's not just out of the riches and glory in Christ. We only have a clue, a hint to this, out of even this chapter in this letter when Paul says in chapter 2, verse 9 through 11, for this reason God highly exalted him, being Jesus, and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know how much how how you know, how much riches are in the glory of Christ? What are the riches in the glory of Christ? All of them. He's above every name. There's nothing he doesn't have. Can God supply your needs? There's always money in his bank. He doesn't run a low balance. He can supply our needs above and beyond we could ever imagine. It's why Paul could say, don't be anxious for anything, but bring your needs to him. In thankfulness and gratitude because he can supply all your needs. And then Paul quickly turns as well at the end of this passage to the end times, to heaven, to glory forever and ever. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. It reminds me here of the same kind of passage in Ephesians 2. Where as we look towards the end and Christ in his grace and kindness that God has shown to us through him. We see how much are the immeasurable riches of grace. How can we be confident that God would give us far above and beyond our needs? Well, because he has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens. As those who are trusting in Christ, God has raised us up and seated us with him. And he will bring that to fruition in, the, in our final glory. But you know why he does it? Ephesians 2 verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace. Through his kindness to us in Christ. How do you know that God will supply all your needs? Because he intends to put on display the immeasurable riches of his grace. Through his kindness to us in Christ. God's not going to shortcut his glory. That's why Paul also said that he will do far above and beyond what we could ever ask or imagine. We can trust him. His grace is immeasurable. His forgiveness, his kindness, all of it putting his glory on display. And now you might say, sure, Chad, you have a Bible verse. You can quote a lot of things. I mean, I mean, just told you that earlier passage is misquoted quite regularly, right? So we could quote that and take it out of context. But Paul continues on and makes a reference here to a couple evidences of God's grace here in the last section that we're looking at today. And so we look at grace, verses 21 through 23. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send you greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Uh, brothers and sisters of the church, God has granted us an immeasurable grace in the saints. And Paul is reminding, like we've already talked about a little bit today, that the church doesn't end here. But we're a part of a greater, greater plan around the globe. 
and that in this body, even the saints are an encouragement. I know that as a church, we can sometimes look like a hot mess. Maybe we look a lot more like Corinthians than we want to. If you haven't read that letter, they are all over the place. Um, but he still calls them saints. God is still showing his immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness to them through Christ. Which is encouraging to me. And I hope it encourages you. But this is the body of Christ. This is every saint in Christ Jesus. And he's at work in here. He's at work in you. He's at work in me. He's at work through us and in us. Paul's closing reminder is also to the Philippians that they are not standing firm alone. We are not alone. You are not alone. And Paul is dropping one additional encouragement when he says this, those who belong to Caesar's household. Now that's not necessarily by blood relation. It's not that they're family of Caesar. It's also a reference to people who could work in the household of Caesar. And earlier in this very letter, he mentions that the, the gospel is being known throughout the Praetorian Guard. And it's almost as if Paul is coming back around to remind them again, you may be facing persecution and opposition from government officials and other people in your community, but remember the gospel is advancing in God's power even through those ranks. That the household of Caesar, the saints and the household of Caesar especially send you greetings. God still is has the power to save, guys even our enemies. You may or may not have people in opposition to you. You may have people that come to persecute you who just rub, they just don't like you for one reason or the other and they seem to be against you day in, day out. We can pray for them. We can pray because Paul was literally killing the church and now he's writing this letter. He was a modern day Middle East terrorist dragging women and children out of their homes because they claimed Christ. And now he's encouraging the churches. God can do far more than we could ever ask or imagine. He has the power to save. And here in this last passage is where I will argue is the foundation for all of us as Christians. The final note of grace in verse 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. His final wish to them, his final greeting, his closing here in verse 23, and that is this, Christ is with us. His desire for the Philippians is the foundation for everything he wants to see in and through them. Our contentment, our hope can be placed in the Lord because of the abundant grace he has shown us in Christ. So you and I, we're lost and dead apart from Christ. Do you know that? That's why Ephesians 2, he reminds them before, you were also like those who were lost and dead in sin. And if you don't recognize that and being dead in your sin, you have to consider what has Christ, what has God done in Christ for us? When we look at the cross, we have the benefit of knowing what God has done for our sin. We were lost before. How can we trust and place our confidence in the Lord? How can we trust that he will keep his promises? Christ. 
But guys, at creation, man chose sin. And even in that moment when man chose sin, God made a promise. Genesis 3.15, when he was talking to the serpent, he said, I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And he's saying this, the enemy, yes, you've won this battle, but I will win the war. This is a promise of Christ. And then we can look forward to that passage in Matthew where it reads this. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, being Joseph, and said this, Son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. How can we have confidence that God is for us, that Christ is a firm foundation? Because we can look and see Christ. Because while we were yet dead in our sins, 2,000 years ago, in a stable, in a little town called Bethlehem, God demonstrated his love for us and his son, Jesus, born as a baby. We stand on this side of the cross and can see God's grace to us through Christ, just like Paul. And that's what Paul's foundation was in. He said to live is Christ, but to die would be gain because I'd be with him. And he knew that if his life was to be anything, it must be founded on Christ. Because we can trust God's promises because all of them find their yes in Christ. God's grace to us. Because of this trust, because of his promises, because of his fulfillment, we can trust that nothing can separate us from the love of God. If he gave us his own son, how will he not give us all things in him? He wouldn't waste the life of his son. He's not given and taken back. This is all for his glory that he could put on display their immeasurable riches of his grace. So no matter our circumstances, we can trust that all things work together for God's people. We want all people to hear the good news of Jesus Christ and experience life in Christ. So we are generous with our things. We can be content in knowing that what we have is sufficient because God is for us and he will provide all we need. And if we believe the gospel, then how could we not with what God has given us be generous? We will give our life, time, and resources because it's not ours in the first place, but God's gift to steward. And we know that God holds the power to save. And he will accomplish it. And we can trust him. Father, thank you so much for your kindness, for your grace in Christ. And thank you for your love that you've demonstrated for us in your word. God, I pray that God, be with us here today. Grant us a special grace 
your word would dwell in us deeply. That your, move, your spirit would move in us and through us. God, remind us anew that we can place our trust in Christ. That you're sufficient for us. That we can learn to be content because we know that you're alive in us, strengthening us to do all things for your glory. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your son. And we ask all this in his name.